0: Alright, well it's good to be back with you again here this morning and uh, it's a privilege and yeah, we're so thankful for the body of believers here and how we've felt, prayed for and supported all the many years since we left so long ago. Crazy how time goes on. About 45 years ago, long before we came here, I was at Bible school and I was teaching I don't know how it came to be, whether we drew straws or we were uh, tasked to pick a psalm to preach a Sunday school lesson on. But I was in, in class, and uh, it was Christian education class, and they were teaching us how to be teachers. So, um, and I s- chose Psalm 63. And so 45 years ago, uh, I was teaching a class of my, my fellow students from Psalm 63, where I'd like to take you this morning. And one of the things that we were told that really was, helped me a lot was when you're putting together a sermon or a lesson, especially a Sunday school lesson, we call it the hook, book, look, took method. Have you heard that? Okay. Well, here it is. I want to tell you, every sermon in the last 27, 6 years that I've ever preached has followed this same pattern, hook, Book, look, took, and and honestly, if you look at what we call the Sermon on the Mount, I love to ask people, what do you think the title of Jesus' sermon was for the Sermon on the Mount? And they said, well, it's just the Sermon on the Mount. Nah, but think about that one. But anyway, it follows that pattern. He has the hook, which is we call it the Beatitudes, which is just to get people to. What is he saying? What's he talking about? It's to bring people together to think from all the different. You've, all come from different places today, all over who knows where, and you're here, and who knows what's gone on in your life this morning, but my job is to get us started thinking together, and that's what a a hook does. It gets all of us to one place together, so we can start from that point to look at the book and see what the book says, but the hook has to be connected to the book. It's not just some random story, and then once we look at the book, then we want to Take something from it. We want no. We want to hook, book, look. Is what is what is actually saying? Why why did the author write that? What did he say? And what's the context? What the history, the the biography, the the people involved, and then finally you ended up with the the takeaway. What does this mean for me today? So, forty five years ago, I was uh, my hook for this Psalm uh, sixty three. I still laugh every time I come to Psalm sixty three about it, but you played that game where you uh, you know, a group of people who say, okay, I have a little contest here and you have saltine crackers and you get some volunteers and you give a couple people crackers and you say, okay whoever can eat the cracker the fastest and then whistle, you know, is, is the win. And you get, you know, cracker crumbs sprayed all over it, trying to whistle with their mouth is dry. So we did that I had a couple of volunteers and um uh, they, they chewed down the crackers, and then they tried to whistle and say, okay, the whistle. And I had sitting up front this nice big pitcher of cold water and some cups. And then I said, okay, uh, you're the winner, and who would like a drink of water? And everybody's like, okay. And I said, no. And it's like, why? And I said, are you thirsty? And I said, well, yeah. I said, have you ever been thirsty for God? As David starts this Psalm 63 out with, Oh God, you are my God, my soul thirsts for you. And I just have wondered about that for so many years, what that really looks like. And I think we know and we've probably experienced times in our lives when we we feel empty, we feel uh, needy. And we cry out to God. And, and this expression that David uses when he says, my soul thirsts for God. And then he says, my flesh, my body longs for God in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So we're going to look at Psalm 63 today. And as I mentioned to you last week, I started eight years ago memorizing a psalm, one psalm a year. Like a, You could do that. Don't tell me you can't memorize if you give yourself a long enough period of time to memorize something. And I thought, yeah, I could do that. Psalm 62, when I, you know, when I turned 62, and the next year I memorized Psalm 63. So it's been seven years since I've been memorizing and, and meditating and thinking about this wonderful Psalm 63 that David wrote. And uh, so I want to encourage you to think about that possibility of... of uh, Hiding God's words in your heart, not just so it can be there, but then just bringing it up over and over again and thinking about it—wonderful things that that come that God speaks to into your heart when you do that. But I want to remind you today that um, this section of the Psalms are, were all kind of composed together uh, around the time of what we call Absalom's rebellion, when David's son. Decided he wanted to be king and so he got some important and influential people around him and Intended to take Dad out (laughs) Not for dinner Uh, in a in a bad way and uh, There's a group of Psalms here that were written around that time and and put it in that context really gives us some some interesting background material to think about uh, as to what was going through David's mind and certainly the the brokenness he must have felt the heartache the the sorrow the the confusion and the the fear uh, as as not only his son but some of his close to, closest advisors had turned against him uh, and he didn't know who he could trust and, and last week when we looked at psalm 62 that um, it's a psalm that's actually not there's not much prayer in it. It's actually a psalm that's more like a spoken to a group of people to get them to maybe take a stand. Are, they, are you for me or against me kind of thing? David says, this is where I am, but there's people out here that are trying to take me out. And where are you? Um, and he encourages in Psalm 62 those who are listening to his song um, to really take a stand with him. Uh, and, and to to identify those who are who are for him and those who are against him and psalm sixty two is not written really as a prayer to God, which is interesting. I, um, it, it was Pastor Ron who got me to think about some of our songs you know we sing about ourselves i 'm leaning on the everlasting arms going, that's that 's well what, what i 'm doing. Some of them are written to God as prayers psalm sixty two was written about uh, the congregation that David was talking to, about where they were, and what they were going to do in response to what was happening, Psalm 63 is a prayer. It is all addressed to God, which is a, a wonderful thing to, to ponder because there are different voices in the Psalms, and this one is particularly and very pointedly a prayer to God. So I'd like to just quote it for you here this morning as we begin as, as an opening prayer, um, so let's let me just pray this with you um, oh God you are my God earnestly I seek you my soul thirsts for you my flesh longs for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory Because your love is better than life, my my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who seek my life will be destroyed. They will be given over to the sword and become food for the jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him. But the mouth of all liars will be silenced. Amen my soul thirsts for god i have to confess here at the beginning when david says earnestly i i seek you (laughs) should we be honest here so many times i read that and i think "Mm, no for me most of the time it's (laughs) half-heartedly i seek you it's When convenient, I seek you. And in the times when I am on my knees and I earnestly seek God, it's like I don't want to be here. It's the last place I want to be. And it's the best place to be. Earnestly, I seek you. I always think, too, of that crazy, uh, interesting, romantic comedy written many years ago called The Importance of Being Earnest. (laughs) It was a valuable thing. The importance of being earnest. Another thing that comes to my mind when I read that kind of in the same vein as we have a, a, one of our elders at the chapel on the island is a, a banker and I asked him about that and he said yeah and you probably all know this earnest money is just a small you know down payment saying you really are intending to purchase to bind this contract and I, many times I feel like my earnestness is just a small down payment compared to the the earnestness which with with which God has sought me, the desire that He has for for my fellowship. So when I when I read this psalm, I think of David's you know heart and and where he was at and the the uncertainty and the brokenness and the sorrow of his heart. And he says, "Earnestly I seek You." It was. It was full-fledged uh, and broken before him. And more on that later because I want to come back to the idea of, of earnest prayer um, a little bit later. There's, as I said, a strong connection between these two psalms. Uh, in, in Psalm 62, at the very end, there is a, a little bit of a directed to God where he says, One thing I have heard, uh, and uh, and two things... Um, I remember that, that you, O oh God, are strong, and that you, O oh Lord, are loving. And then he begins this psalm with, O oh God, you are my God. And that word, you know, we know Elohim, the plural name of God, is strong one, strength. So he ends the last uh, psalm with that idea that you, O oh God, are strong. And he begins this one with, O oh God, O oh strong one, you are my strength, O oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. And again, I want to remind you where David is when he is writing this song. I see as Psalm 62, he was still in Jerusalem. Uh, there was time there, not much time, but he had to gather a few things and then say we need to leave quickly because Absalom and his, his uh, crew are marching on Jerusalem from Hebron and they intend to take our lives and anybody who's not with him is is done for. And so he gathers things but he challenges those who are with him to to decide, are you coming with me or are you going to stay here? And uh, there's a real Attitude of a challenge in in psalm 62, but this one here I see is written uh, After he has fled Jerusalem they've crossed over and down through into the valley and across the Jordan River uh, There's an interesting fascinating thing that happens there in in 2nd uh, Samuel chapters 15 16 17 But they're on the their east side out in the desert then they're on their way to a place called Mah- Mahanaim and and uh, I have these wonderful—you've uh, probably seen these satellite pictures, you know, beautiful photographs. Actually, you can pull them out your, on your phone now. But that area has always been dry and desert land out in the uh, east of the Jordan Valley, and so in this not only uh, dry and desert experience of his life, this brokenness, but now he is surrounded by dry and weary and and uh, parched land and. In that context, in that setting, David is inspired to use what he sees around him. And it, it reflects the barrenness of his soul at this time. And, and then he writes, he sings, and I wonder what the tune was. I expect a minor key uh, of, of brokenness. And he says, um, My soul thirsts for you in a dry and and weary land where there's no water. And again, I want us to think the idea of being in that place, and and we've been in that place, you've been in that place at different times in your life, and we don't want to be there. But God allows us to be there. And in fact, for David, it was a a place of protection. It was a place of safety. It was a place that he was allowed to go to and be taken care of in a very difficult time. And he used that time in his life uh, and what he was feeling and seeing around him to, to draw close to God and to pray earnestly, a heartfelt prayer to God. And so uh, I'm sure you could probably think of times in your life where you, you don't want to be there, but those are the very times when your connection and your need for God is so very clear to you. There's times when everything's going well, we we don't realize how deeply and desperately and daily and moment by moment we need the Lord Jesus. So David says there in the barrenness of the wilderness, of the desert, God, I I need you. And then he goes from that, as we often must, he goes back to, to remembering, to remembering the things that he has seen God do the things that he has known of God and God's faithfulness. And so he says, I have seen you in the sanctuary. I have beheld your power and your glory. It's so important that we do that in our lives in the times when we are uh, having hard, difficult moments, that we remember the times when God didn't fail us, when he was there with us, when we met him in the very most difficult, Tragic and broken times of our lives and remember that he was faithful then And so we remind ourselves that the same God who was faithful to us in those times is with us in these times What he has seen and known to be true of God Are always good to remember for us What we've seen God do uh, are important for us to cling to and to have in our memory banks to, to go back to when we are struggling. Then we come to my favorite part of this psalm, verses 5, 6, and 7. It's really where David turns from remembering God's goodness to him and of reminding himself of God's power and glory and of his commitment to God, of this connection that they have that's gone way back in all of his story in his life to his earliest years. And writing songs out in the hills while he's tending the sheep. Uh, but then he turns to, to praise. To praise uh, of a wonderful and, and rich kind. My soul will be satisfied. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I I think of this this line many times when I can't get to sleep at night. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. You know throughout scripture, that idea of the right hand of God is a very common theme. And it reminds me back to the one who sits at the right hand of God, the very personal Savior who was revealed in Scripture from the very beginning, who came, uh, who we know as our Savior, the Lord Jesus. One of the things I want to point out to you in this section of, of this psalm where David says, My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. Notice in here that he does not um, he's not thinking about what God has done for him. He is thanking God for who he is. That's a really important thing. So many times in my remembering, in my in my seeking God, in my wanting to be right with God, I am I'm focused on what he's done for me in the past. But David here in this part of the psalm remembers not what God has done, but who he is. And that he himself is the answer for our needs. That we come to him, not for what we can get from him, but we come to him because he is, because of his nature, because of his character. And and to remind ourselves that God alone is the, the deepest need of our soul not what he does for us but what he can give to us about who he is a funny thing happened uh this last year i wanted to um share with you from psalm 63 so uh, over the last few years i've decided to become a golfer uh, yeah <laughs> many times i am too it is a challenging, frustrating thing to do. My wife says, why do you? Anyway, <laughs> but I, the coolest thing about it is I've met a group of guys at the, the Navy golf course there on the island who are the interesting, crusty, retired old military people that are <laughs> just a bunch of characters. And uh, honestly, they're... they're Yeah, they're a pretty rough crowd. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I was a, a firefighter for 25 years, and that's another interesting... I always heard this, oh, pardon my language, chaplain, over and over again, you know. Um, and with these guys I played golf with, they're, uh, yeah, they're pretty vulgar, they're pretty gross, and yet they know who I am. I remember uh, this one guy, I just heard it this last week, they said, yeah, the first time he played with you, he, he w- was miserable because he felt awkward every time he used his normal language. Um, that's all right. But he's the guy. Who, his, uh, I didn't ask his permission to share this, but I don't know. he'll never hear this anyway. Maybe he will. Uh, he's called Smoke and Tom, because he goes through a pack in eight, 18 holes. Uh, and his language is, you know, probably the almost the worst of anybody. We're We're standing on the the practice, hitting some practice balls before we were playing one morning. It's, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning and we're all just limbering up, a bunch of old guys trying to swing and move. And Tom turns to me and he says, did you ever watch the movie Patton? And I said, yeah. No, I don't think I've ever watched the whole movie. I've seen clips of it. He said, Tom, smoking Tom. You're standing there and he goes, yeah, he quotes Psalm 63. Okay. Smoke and Tom starts quoting Psalm 63 to me. <laughs> and he says, yeah, it's really interesting. I was watching the movie last night, and he starts quoting Psalm 63. And and then Tom starts saying, yeah, the king will rejoice in God. Um, um, all who who, no, no, it's, it's um, oh, what is it? It's, uh, let me go back to it. Those who, yeah, those who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. And then Smoke and Tom is quoting that to me. They're on the golf course. And, and I, I had memorized it, so I started quoting it back to him, and we were kind of helping each other work through the verses. And then he starts asking me all these questions about, about God and about heaven and about hell and about judgment. And... Uh, that's a wonderful conversation from Psalm 63 about a, a God who is active and at work in people's lives and uh, answered General George Patton's prayers in the midst of World War II. And, and uh, it's led to a number of conversations with Smoke and Tom and Jack and, and Tom and John and uh, Tino, the other day, and uh, I'm just so thankful for these guys. I, honestly, I love these guys. I pray for them. They need the Lord. Some of them kind of know the Lord. I think, interestingly enough, I think Smoking Tom kind of knows the Lord. Um, he just doesn't really understand what that means. <laughs> so we're working on it. Psalm 63. In the next part here, in this part, uh, that Smoke and Tom and I quoted together, David foresees the ultimate failure of those who have opposed themselves to him. Later on in, in the story in Second Samuel, he, as Absalom is, is killed... Um, David mourns deeply and it's this conflict between this love for his son knowing that his son has chosen a path that is wrong but knowing it all comes back to him to David's own failures as a father and as an example and as a as a follower of, of God himself but David foresees the ultimate failure of, of rebellion the ultimate failure of, of dishonesty and of, of uh, intrigue and uh, that any, any effort that's not rooted in, in integrity um, and truth cannot, cannot uh, have the blessing of God. And so he says, David says, the king will rejoice in God. And it ends with this last confident uh, and yet poignant state, um, the mouths of all liars will be silenced. The King James says, Stopped. I like that. As I mentioned in uh, looking at Psalm sixty-two last week, and I want to just go there again today. David was in this place of, of brokenness, of sorrow, of of anguish, uh, of confusion, knowing that it stemmed from his own failures. It wasn't something that he'd been a perfect dad and why did this happen? No, he knew that um, he'd already seen um, one son kill another son. Uh, He'd seen immorality in his own household, and now his son Absalom is trying to kill him. But it all stemmed from David's great, great failure. And how that must have uh, been like a, a sword dug even deeper into his soul as he expressed his, his earnest uh, need and longing for God. But I want us to, to take the words of Psalm 63 again and, and put them in Jesus' mouth and remind of us of something really significant here. It's kind of one of those things that happens between the, the Old Testament types and, and the New Testament revelation of, of the person of Jesus. But it was David's sin that led to this, this horrible tragedy in his life. His brokenness, his uh, weeping and, and sorrow for his son's rebellion but knowing it would fail. But it was, it was our sin that led to Jesus anguish. It was our rebellion that led to Jesus heartfelt cries and earnest prayers. What more earnest prayer could there be than Jesus and Gethsemane father. If it be possible that this cup pass for me, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And I want us to to imagine Jesus in the, as Hebrews tells us, um, that he learned obedience as a son through the earnest crying out in prayer that Jesus did in his earthly life. And so I I want us to just see and hear these words in Jesus' mouth from Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you my soul thirsts for you my flesh longs for you david's cry was was a, a a preparation for the the truth of what the depth of that cry could be in the mouth and the experience and the life of of jesus jesus alone could have truly deeply perfectly expressed that Statement: I have seen you, God, in the sanctuary. I have beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. The confidence Jesus had not only in his suffering and his anguish and his prayers to God, but also in certainty that God was going to bring him through unimaginable suffering to the the fullness of of glory when he says my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods with singing lips my mouth will praise you and yet David prayed and Jesus as well experienced the the watchful nights we're told in Scripture that he got up many times before dark and went out and prayed in lonely places. And it was all because of our sin and his desire to bring us to himself. At the end of Psalm 63, there's this tragic uh, reminder, an expression of the certainty of destruction for those who rebel, that there is no hope, there is no blessing from God, there is no good that comes to those who plot and scheme to overthrow that which God has put in place. The certainty of woe to those who refuse the gospel. You know, Jesus pronounced woes there in Matthew 23 on the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, woe to you teachers. That word woe is not one that means you're in big trouble. It literally means I weep for you. But the king will rejoice in God as will all who take refuge in him. And then I wanna leave you with this wonderful thought that uh, has encouraged me greatly when I think about the prayers of Jesus, as the Bible gives us some of them and uh, tells us that he earnestly prayed to his father and sought God with tears during his earthly life. But the Bible tells me that now he's still, and this encourages me greatly. Jesus prays for you. Jesus prays for me. Let me read you from Romans chapter 8. You know these verses. Romans chapter 8. And I want to thank Josh. The songs that you picked out this morning were just so perfect for what I wanted to share this morning. What shall we say then in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that, who is raised to life and is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Interceding for us. And then from Hebrews chapter five, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And he became the source of eternal salvation. For all who obey him. And then from Hebrews chapter seven, verse twenty-five. Unlike other high priests, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. Oops, I am one and one behind there. Verse 25. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Think of the earnest prayers of Jesus during his earthly life, but think of him now praying earnestly for you in your need, in your questions, in your struggles, in your family, in your longing for your friends who need the Lord or family members. Think of Jesus Who prays for you who prays for us that is his job first John chapter 2 tells us he is our advocate with the father he is our intercessor and as Job prayed so many thousands of years ago Job said my intercessor is my friend let's pray father God thank you so much again for your word I pray that each of us here, myself included, would would hear um, in David's cries, in his longings, in his rememberings, in his confidence, um, that you are the deepest need of our soul, not what you can do for us. You've already done everything, but who you are. And then help us, God, to take great comfort in the fact, knowing that in whatever we face or whatever we need. You, Lord Jesus, who know us because you became one of us, you pray for us. Thank you so much, our intercessor and our friend. Amen.